We're getting back into Samuel this morning after a, a one-week break, so let me help us get our bearings where we are in this story. The book opens with Baron Hannah from the backwoods of Ephraim crying out to the Lord at the tabernacle to open her womb. Uh, she vows that if she is granted a son by the Lord, her son will be a lifetime Nazarite, a holy warrior devoted to the Lord all his days. Well, in time, the Lord fulfills her prayer and Samuel is born. And so then Hannah fulfills her vow, leaving her child at the house of the Lord uh, at age three so he can begin serving there. Hannah celebrates the gift of a son with a psalm that looks ahead to a future judgment and to victory that will come through God's anointed one, uh, God's promised king. As Samuel grows up in the tabernacle, there is a very sharp contrast between him and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli is the high priest, but he's pretty bad himself. His sons are far, far worse. And so there's this contrast between Samuel, who's growing in faithfulness, and Hophni and Phinehas, who are growing in wickedness. Hophni and Phinehas steal food from the worshipers. They steal food from the Lord. They steal the women who minister at the door of the tabernacle. Their liturgical and sexual sins make them ripe for judgment. And because they are the priests, of course, their sins have this rippling effect through the nation as a whole. Their father, Eli, offers a weak rebuke, but he does nothing about his son's sins. He does nothing to to restrain them, though he is the high priest, though he is the judge in Israel, though he is their father, he does nothing about their sins. He is the classic permissive, abdicating father who would rather his kids be happy than holy. But in reality, we see what the Lord is doing. The Lord is hardening the whole house of Eli. He is hardening them for judgment. Judgment is going to fall on the house of Eli. And an unnamed prophet at the end of chapter 2, an unnamed man of God, announces that. Chapter 2, again, makes it really clear. While Eli's sons are growing in wickedness, the boy Samuel is growing in righteousness. That contrast is very clearly the theme of chapter 2. They are unfaithful priests, whereas Samuel is becoming a faithful priest. He even has little priestly garment that his mother brings him. She'll bring him a new robe every year, a new priestly vestment to wear each year that he can grow into in that coming year until she sees him again. So he's a miniature priest, but certainly a faithful priest. And all of this, of course, suggests that he is the replacement for Hophni and Phinehas. In a way, he's been adopted by Eli. Eli has become his guardian. He will be a replacement for Hophni and Phinehas. He will inherit the priestly duties they are failing to perform. All of this sets the stage for what happens next in chapter 3, which we come to this morning. And from chapter 3, verse 1, into chapter 4, verse 1, we have a very tightly self-contained story that shows us what God is doing at this point in history. Samuel continues on his trajectory into maturity and faithfulness. We've already seen him functioning as a priest. Now he's going to be called as a prophet. And so he's a priest already, but now he's going to begin functioning as a prophet as well. He'll add another office to his status. And meanwhile, the house of Eli continues its downward slide into apostasy, into idolatry, into depravity. We will see that Hophni and Phinehas are going to lose their office. They will lose their priestly status. For the house of Eli, the priesthood will be taken away. 
Samuel will be salt and light in the midst of a rotten and dark time in Israel's history. And so he becomes a model, really, for the rest of the people of Israel. Samuel's ministry marks the start of something new. Yes, God is going to bring judgment. Judgment begins with the house of God. That means judgment begins with the house of Eli. But following that judgment, there will be reformation. God's going to bring reformation and transformation to the land, and he's going to do it through Samuel especially. So the first three verses of chapter 3 really summarize Israel's plight at this point in history. So three things we see here in these three opening verses. First, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Second, Eli the high priest is going blind. And third, the lamp of God hasn't gone out yet, but it's going to. Each one of these problems, I think, deserves a close look because really they parallel problems we see in our culture today. This is uh, a way of summarizing the crisis facing Israel in their day, and really I think it helps us understand the crisis we're facing in our own day. Start with that first one there at the very beginning of the chapter. The word of the Lord was rare. God did not send them prophets or seers very often. There is a lack of the word of the Lord in the land. God is not giving people revelatory visions that will guide them. And without a vision, the people perish. That's where they are. Well, uh, today you could say we have the completed canon of Scripture. So we don't need prophets or seers to deliver inspired revelation to us the way Israel did in that day. They only had a very partial and incomplete Bible. So they needed their word, the Bible, to be supplemented by prophetic speech and prophetic visions in their day, but God was withholding his revelation from them. It's as if God is giving Israel the silent treatment. I think this has to be understood as punishment for Israel's sins, especially the sins of the nation's religious leadership because the priests are unfaithful. The downstream consequence of that is people are not hearing from the Lord. There's a famine of the word in the land. The prophet Amos in his day talked about this kind of thing as well. In Amos chapter 8, the Lord declared that he would send a famine on the land of Israel. Not a famine of bread or water, but something much, much worse. A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Psalm 74 also describes something like this. Psalm 74 9, uh, the people say, we do not see signs. There is no longer a prophet among us. It's as if God is chastening the people in Psalm 74 by withdrawing his revelation. He's withdrawing his word from them. He's withdrawing the light of his revelation, leaving them in the dark. See, when God wants to give a people over to judgment, when a people have rebelled against him and he is ready to give them over to judgment, what does he do? He takes away his word. When he wants to bless a people, he gives them his word in abundance. When he judges a people, he takes his word away. Now, what does that mean for us today? How might this apply to us today? Well, obviously in America, Bibles are abundant. Almost every household in America, uh, it seems, has a Bible. But I think the real test here is not, do we possess God's word? Do we have it on our shelves gathering dust? Do we own a Bible? That's not the question here. The question is, what do we do with the word of God? What do we do with God's word? Especially, I think we should ask, is God's word faithfully preached? It is the public proclamation of God's word that counts the most. That's the real test. Is the word of God faithfully and publicly 
preached. And sadly, I think you have to say, in America today, despite having an abundance of Bibles, biblical preaching is relatively rare. So much of the church garbles God's message. So much of the truth garbles God's truth. So many pulpits are compromised in various ways with the culture. Think about this historically. Uh, in the late medieval period in Europe, there was certainly an absence of the word of God, and so darkness was spreading over uh, medieval Europe. It seemed that Christendom might come to an end. The 16th century Reformation can be understood as an explosion of faithful biblical preaching. It is the light returning to the land. And that's why the Reformation of the 16th century was so life-changing and world-changing. You know, here we are 500 plus years later, we're still celebrating the Reformation. We'll celebrate it next Sunday. It's worth celebrating because it is this faithful, it's this explosion of faithful preaching, the light of God's word shining on the land again. In Geneva, where uh, John Calvin ministered, they had a slogan, after darkness, light. The light of God's word breaking forth upon the people again. That was their motto. By light, that's what they meant, the light of God's word. God's word as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. See, when God is kind to a people, when God pours out his grace and abundance upon a people, he gives them faithful preachers. He gives them a love for hearing the word of God, for hearing the word of God preached. That is God's kindness, faithful preaching, faithful hearing. That's the manifestation of God's grace. Sadly, though, a lot of preachers in America today are honestly a joke. They make a joke out of God's word. They pander to the culture more than they preach God's truth. There should be a stream of pure water, living water flowing from the pulpit. Instead, they pollute that stream. They, they, they pollute the flow of that water, and it poisons the whole land. I think we're seeing that happen. It's really interesting. Going back to Geneva uh, in Calvin's day in the mid-1500s, the preaching schedule was so full, people would gather to hear six sermons a week. Almost every day, they would gather for preaching. And these were not sermonettes for Christianettes. No, we have a lot of these sermons. A lot of Calvin's sermons have been preserved. These were deep, weighty expositions of Scripture, searchingly applying God's word to the lives of the people and the life of the city. And it wasn't that people were forced to go listen to these sermons no, they wanted to go hear the word of God. They knew that the public proclamation of God's truth is their very life. Many times when the word is not preached, it's because preachers have become cowards. They're just afraid to do so. They know what will happen if they do preach the word faithfully, the upheaval it will bring. But sometimes it's because the people won't put up with it. The preacher seeks to be faithful, the people refuse to listen. Sometimes the word is faithfully preached and it falls on deaf ears. A feast is served up and the people refuse to eat. That can happen too, where people starve themselves. Sometimes it's the fault of the preacher, sometimes the, the listeners. But the bottom line is this. There is no life without God's word. God's word is a gift. It's a treasure. If we don't love God's word, if we don't love the proclamation of God's word, God's truth, what will happen? God will take it away as a judgment. That's what was happening in 1 Samuel 3. I'm afraid that is what's happening in so much of America today. I don't want to act as if it's happening everywhere. There are many, many faithful churches and preachers throughout our land. But certainly there are many who are badly compromised, who are just as corrupt 
as Hophni and Phinehas. Well, second, what's the second thing we see here? Eli was going blind. Since he was a judge, this was a real problem. Eli had no vision, and God is not giving any visions to the people. And so really, it's very clear here, Eli's physical blindness is not just a personal handicap. It symbolizes his spiritual condition. In fact, it symbolizes what is happening in Israel as a whole. All of Israel's going blind. God's not giving visions to the people. It's very similar uh, when Isaac goes blind in the book of Genesis. He's blind in more than one way. He's physically blind, but also spiritually blind. He's lacking discernment, and that's why he prefers the wrong son. Okay, Eli, same kind of thing here. He is blind in more than one way. He lacks discernment. He lacks insight. You know, we have a saying, justice is blind. Uh, We have images and statues that, that depict Lady Justice as blindfolded. Okay, but that's really more Greek than it is biblical. In the Bible, the eyes are the organs of judgment. A judge is not supposed to be blind. Rather, a judge is supposed to have penetrating sight. In Genesis 1, God sees what he has made each day and judges it good. You see and you judge accordingly. In the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus has eyes of fire, eyes that can penetrate the darkness, all-seeing eyes, because he is the judge. Seeing and judging go together Eli is supposed to be a judge in Israel, but he's lost his sight. His blindness means he's a leader who is no longer fit to lead. He's a judge, but he's a blind judge, so of course he can't judge faithfully. In Israel as a whole at this moment, the blind are leading the blind, and of course the result is going to be disaster. I would say, again, this is much like America today. Do you really trust our leaders, our elites in our land today to have insight to make good judgments? I would say no. We've seen them make enough bad judgments. We've seen enough blindness amongst our leaders to know that's not the case. Our leaders are going blind. Our nation is in this situation of the blind leading the blind. Well, the third thing we're told here is the lamp of God is going out. This lamp, of course, is the lamp that's in the tabernacle near the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting that the Ark of the Covenant gets mentioned here. That's to identify the lamp for us, but also Starting in the next chapter, the Ark of the Covenant is going to figure very prominently in this story. So here you have the lamp, uh, and it's about to go out. Now, according to Leviticus 24, that lamp should never go out. That lamp was the only source of light in the tabernacle. If that light goes out, which it is about to, that's what's suggested here, Israel will be left in the dark. It is a further sign that God is withdrawing his presence. The tabernacle is going to be destroyed soon. God is going to put their lights out. This is what it looks like for a nation to come under judgment, for a nation to be in a time of crisis. God withdraws the light of his presence, the light of his love, the light of his wisdom, yes, the light of his word. So these are the issues. These are really the three issues laid out for us in the first three verses of chapter three. And it really sets the stage for this part of the book. Well, what do we find? Uh, One night, as Eli and Samuel were both sleeping, God calls out to Samuel. Samuel is Eli's son, in a way, because Eli is now his guardian uh, at the tabernacle, but he is especially Yahweh's son, and so of course he's sleeping somewhere in Yahweh's house. 
Samuel is sleeping in the tabernacle precincts, and after hearing his name calls, he figures this must be Eli, and so he goes to Eli. He's an obedient son. He says, here I am. But Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And then it happens again and again. And after the third time, Eli realizes, Eli's, again, he's pretty blind, but he at least, he at least recognizes this. He realizes that this must be the Lord calling to Samuel. And so he gives instructions that if Samuel hears this again, how he is to respond. And so in verse 10, when the Lord calls out, Samuel, Samuel, the boy responds by saying, speak for your servant is listening. We've just been told the Lord has withdrawn his word. There are no visions in the land, but now the Lord is speaking to Samuel and he's showing himself to Samuel. See a couple things about this. Verse 10 tells us the Lord came and stood by Samuel. This is not just a word from the Lord, it's a vision from the Lord as well. Uh, the Lord speaks and appears to Samuel. So this answers the problem that's just been identified in verse 1, where Israel is lacking words and visions from the Lord. Samuel gets both, a word and an appearance. Verse 7 says, Samuel did not recognize the Lord's voice because the word of the Lord was not, had not yet been revealed to him. Uh, some take this statement that Samuel didn't know the Lord at this point. Some take this to say, ah, oh, well, obviously at this point in his life, Samuel's not a believer. He's growing up in Eli's corrupt household. Uh, they'll use this fact that we're told here that Samuel did not know the Lord. They'll argue from that fact that therefore children born to believing parents are not really Christians. They're not really believers until they have what you might call a conscious conversion experience sometime later in life. And so they'll use this text to argue against the very concept of a covenant child. See, Samuel was not, he was not a covenant child. He had to have a conversion experience later on in life. He didn't grow up in the faith. They'll use this text to argue against that very concept that you can grow up in the faith. But I don't think that's a very good reading of the text. I don't think that's a good description of what's happening here. This is not Samuel's conversion. And there are at least a couple of ways that we know that. For one, we've already been told in chapter 2 that he's been worshiping the Lord. He's been serving in the Lord's presence from his earliest days. He was dropped off at age 3. Already, we're told, he's ministering in the Lord's presence. He's worshiping. He's serving the Lord. So from his earliest days, clearly, he was a believer. His worship was accepted by God. Further, in this chapter, the message that he's given is not a gospel message aimed at converting him, but a message of judgment that he's got to announce to Eli. God is not converting him to the faith. God is calling him to the prophethood here. This is not Samuel's conversion. He's already converted. He's already a believer. He already knows the Lord in that sense. What he doesn't know is the Lord as a prophet. See, if, if you ask that question, what does it mean in verse 7 when it says he did not know the Lord? I think it means he didn't know the Lord's voice. It means he was not yet a prophet. He had no experience in hearing directly from the Lord, as prophets do, and then delivering a message, the message heard from the Lord, which is, again, what prophets do. And so really, that's what this is. This is the Lord calling Samuel as a prophet, in fact, the word calling shows up 11 times in this chapter. It is clearly the theme. If you had to put a, a label on this chapter, that's what this is, the calling of Samuel as prophet. The word of the Lord was rarely spoken in Israel in those days, in the days of Eli's rule, but that is about to change. 
thanks to Samuel, because God is appointing Samuel as his spokesman, as his mouthpiece, as his prophet. See, if Israel is going to be renewed, Israel is in this time of crisis, this time of darkness, if Israel is going to be renewed, it's going to be through the word of the Lord, and Samuel is going to be the one to deliver that word. He is in this chapter coming to know the Lord as the prophet's do, which means he's becoming a member of the Lord's heavenly council, God's inner circle, as it were. Now today we can say we're all prophets, we're all members of God's heavenly council, but in the old covenant that was a privilege reserved for the prophets to be part of God's inner circle in this way. See, the work of prophets is to create new worlds through their words, in, in a way. That's what the prophet does as God's spokesman. He creates a new world through his words, and that's what Samuel's going to do in Israel. Note, too, how the Lord calls his, his name twice here. This is another little clue as to what's going on. The Lord calls his name twice, Samuel, Samuel. God did the same thing with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when God called Moses to be his prophet. He said, Moses, Moses. And in fact, it's interesting, Samuel is the first man called a prophet in the Bible since Moses. It's also interesting in Acts chapter 9 uh, when God calls to Saul, who we come to know as Paul, uh, when God calls him to be his apostle, as it were, he calls to him, again, with the double name, Saul, Saul. So same kind of thing. This is clearly a prophet calling passage. This is the calling of a prophet. Well, the job of a prophet is never easy, and it won't be for Samuel. Samuel will have to deliver a word of judgment against his guardian, against Eli and his household. The Lord says to Samuel, I'm about to do a thing in Israel which will make the ears of everyone tingle. But that's a little bit, uh, that's kind of a weak translation. It'd be more accurate um, to say the Lord is going to rock the ears of those who hear the message. He's going to make their ears ring and buzz. This is going to be a word that roars in their ears. It's going to be a message of judgment that thunders in their ears, that shakes them up. God's going to make good on the threat he's already announced to Eli's house in the last chapter. The Lord says to Samuel, because Eli's sons have blasphemed the Lord and because Eli did not restrain them, therefore the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. Think about this, under the old covenant system, all of those sacrifices, those offerings, of course, pointed ahead to the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And they were your temporary means of atonement in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, pointing ahead to the effective atonement Jesus would accomplish on the cross. Because Eli and his sons have despised the offerings because they've trampled the blood of the covenant under their feet, because they've treated the sacrifices with contempt, Therefore, there is no atoning for their sin. There is no sacrifice for their sin. What they're doing with the offerings would be like spitting on the cross of Jesus. They're despising the cross of Jesus by treating these sacrifices with contempt. And that means there's no covering for their sin. So this is the message Samuel is going to have to deliver. He must not blunt the sharp edge of God's word. He must proclaim this word of judgment, obviously a word that uh, is not going to be welcomed by everyone. 
So what happens? Well, uh, we're told the next morning, Samuel opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Why would we be told this? Well, obviously, if this is included in the story, it must have meaning. I think we should see this as a symbolic action, a symbolic action. The doors of the tabernacle have already been very important in this story. Eli was seated by the doors of the tabernacle. This is where Hannah made her prayer. She prayed by the open doors of the tabernacle that her womb would be opened. Uh, later on, we find out that, um, that, that Hophni and Phinehas slept with the women at the door of the tabernacle. What's the door of the tabernacle? What's that all about? Well, this is the, the access way, the entryway into the presence of God. The door is where the priests would stand guard. The old guardians from Eli's household, Hophni and Phinehas, have obviously failed to be guardians of God's house. Samuel will be the new guardian of the Lord's house, like the cherubim who guarded the way back into the Garden of Eden, back into the sanctuary of Eden. Samuel will now be the doorkeeper, the gatekeeper. He will be uh, the one who guards the way back into the presence of God. Why does Samuel open the door? Well, it could be ultimately pointing to uh, the new birth of a nation, uh, of the nation of Israel, a, a new beginning. Perhaps it's pointing to that, though that's not going to happen just yet. Uh, you might think, well, this is so the people can come into the presence of the Lord, but that's not going to happen yet either. The people are not going to stream into the Lord's house when he opens the door. The next thing that's going to happen in the next chapter is the Lord's going to leave the tabernacle. So perhaps Samuel is opening the door as a way of saying, the judgment has arrived. The Lord's about to leave this place. I'm opening the door. The glory is about to depart from Israel because of Israel's sin. The Ark of the Covenant will be taken away. That's what happens in the next chapter. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be captured by the Philistines, the very throne of God, taken away from the tabernacle. I think that's probably what's um, most central to this. It is as if the Lord is telling Samuel, I'm going away for a while, and I'm leaving you in charge while I'm gone. And so, Samuel, you'll be the priest and the prophet and the judge who rules Israel while I, while I am away. The door is opening so a word can come out, so a word can come out from the presence of the Lord, so a word can come out from Samuel. If Israel wants a word from the Lord, they're going to have to go to Samuel to get it. And note here, too, how Samuel becomes a leader in Israel. He doesn't seize a position of power for himself. He doesn't grab hold of it in a selfish kind of way. No, he faithfully waits for God to exalt him. He comes to power in God's appointed way, simply by serving faithfully where he is, fulfilling his responsibilities. And the Lord promotes him to this great position. Of course, that's really a preview of what's going to happen with David later on in the book. Well, you might understand if Samuel was a little bit reluctant to deliver this message uh, the next morning. Prophets uh, are often reluctant to deliver their messages. Contrary to popular opinion, prophets, and for that matter, preachers and teachers, usually don't like announcing judgment. They don't like preaching God's wrath against sin. There are certainly easier things to talk about. Uh, it's usually not enjoyable to tell people what they don't want to hear. For Samuel, delivering this message at this moment to Eli is really a test of his courage, a test of his loyalty, a test of his faithfulness. Will he be a faithful prophet and deliver the word, or will he be like Hophni and Phinehas and fail to give the word to the people? 
Note here that Eli calls Samuel his son, almost as if he knows that Samuel is taking the place of his natural sons. And Eli insists that Samuel not hide from him the Lord's message. And so Samuel, as a faithful prophet, tells Eli everything the Lord has revealed. So think about this. At the end of chapter 2, there was that unnamed man of God who spoke a word of judgment against the house of Eli. Now Samuel speaks God's word of judgment against the house of Eli. What does the law tell us? Every matter, every legal matter is to be established on the basis of two witnesses. You now have two witnesses in these two chapters that God is bringing judgment against the house of Eli because of their sin. Eli responds, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now, it might seem like that's a good response on Eli's part, right? He's submitting to the word of the Lord, God has spoken, he is the Lord, let him do what seems best to him, right? This passive resignation to what the Lord has announced. That might seem like a pious and godly response, but really it's not. It's not a godly response at all. In fact, it's really the whole problem with Eli's life. Again and again, Eli has failed to act when he should act. He's all talk and no action. He needs to do something, and instead he just sits around and talks. And he might say Nice things that sound good, like what he said to his sons or what he says here, but he does not act. This is why he was an overly permissive father. He should have been a man of action. He should have acted to restrain his sons. His speech wasn't enough. He weakly rebukes them, and then he lets them go on in sin. He does not act to do anything about it. It is the same here. There's this passivity. You might even say this effeminacy in Eli. He should act, and he fails to do so. Judgment has been announced. What should he do? We know there are lots of places in scripture where God announces judgment and the people respond by acting in repentant ways. They act by crying out to the Lord. Judgment gets announced and instead of the people saying, well, I guess there's nothing we can do about it. God's going to judge us. The people repent and they cry out to the Lord. And what happens? The Lord relents. The Lord says, okay, I'll withhold judgment because you've repented. Judgment is averted. Think of Jonah and the Ninevites. Jonah goes around preaching to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. God's wrath is coming for you. God's wrath is on the way, 40 days. The the, the, the clock has started ticking. The countdown has started happening. 40 days, you'll be annihilated by God's wrath. What happens from the king on down in the city of Nineveh? They repent. They put on sackcloth and ash. They cry out to the Lord in repentance. And so what happens? Judgment is averted. What should Eli have done here? He should have put on sackcloth and ash. He should have mourned over his sin. He should have demonstrated repentance. He should have acted in repentant ways. In the book of Amos, the same kind of thing happens. And it's really reminiscent of something that happened even earlier with Moses. God says to the prophet Amos, remember prophets are part of God's inner circle, part of God's heavenly counsel. And so Amos hears the judgment that is coming for the people of Israel. And the prophet is alarmed by this. And so he starts to pray and plead with God to relent. And God hears the prayers of Amos and God relents. God delays his judgment. See, Eli, like Amos, like Moses, he should have cried out to the Lord in prayer, Lord, turn your judgment away from us. 
Instead, he just gives into it. He doesn't lead at all. He does not exert any godly leadership here at all. It's really the story of his life. See, faithful men of God act in godly ways. They know that godly talk is not enough. It's got to be backed up with godly action. They have to lead in the way of righteousness by acting righteously. They have to be decisive. They've got to be active rather than passive. They're not fatalists. They don't give up or just give in. They're resilient. They're persistent, even in the face of hardship. See, really, you can see this as the culmination of Eli's failure. He's irresponsible. He is a broken man. He's a pathetic man. He's a pathetic failure. The judgment he will receive is well-deserved. Even after he's told twice judgment is coming, he does nothing to avert it. And so you come to this concluding summary, verse 19. Samuel grew. That really echoes chapter 2. Samuel continues growing. Samuel does a lot of growing in these uh, two chapters in Samuel, chapters 2 and 3. And his physical growth and his spiritual maturation are happening in tandem as they should. Kids, I want you to take note of that. I want you to take note of what's happening with Samuel. You know, you kids, you're growing taller. You're getting bigger. But as you grow in those ways, you should also be growing closer to the Lord. That's what Samuel did. That's the model for you as you're growing up. As you grow taller, grow closer to the Lord. As you grow physically, grow spiritually. We're told that the Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. That probably means that Samuel made additional prophecies that are not recorded here, but that came to pass, and that was the Lord's way of confirming his prophetic office. So there's no question here. Samuel is a prophet. He's got the word of the Lord. Samuel gets a verbal message from the Lord. He also gets a vision or an appearance from the Lord. The result of this is that the reputation of his ministry grew all across Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. So across the whole nation of Israel, they all come to hear that the word of the Lord is with Samuel. No one in Israel will have any excuse for rejecting Samuel's office or rejecting the Lord's, the, the words of the Lord spoken through him in the rest of this book. You've got to keep that in mind as we go. There is no excuse for anyone in Israel to reject Samuel's office or to reject the words spoken through him. Because the Lord has made it clear, Samuel is his mouthpiece. The Lord has established his ministry. Verse 21 tells us the Lord appeared to him again at Shiloh and spoke to him again. It's as if Samuel's another Moses. Samuel, like Moses, has a face-to-face relationship with the Lord. The Lord speaks to Samuel and Samuel delivers the Lord's words to the people. Samuel is kind of a living, walking, breathing Bible for the nation of Israel at this point. You want to know what, what God's word is? You go to Samuel at this point in Israel's history. The role the Bible plays for us, Samuel is playing for Israel at this point in her history. Well, let's wrap this up. What does this mean for us? What does a story like this mean for us today? There are a couple of things that stand out to me. First of all, we need to understand that all of God's blessings are conditional. When God gives us gifts, when God gives us blessings, if we want those blessings to remain blessings, we must receive them with faith and with thanksgiving. And if we do not, those blessings will become curses to us. Those blessings will devolve into curses for us. They'll just intensify the judgment we ultimately receive. Let me give you a really obvious example of this. Take money. Is money a blessing or a curse? Well, 
Scripture is really obvious that money is a gift received in faith and used faithfully. If you act as a wise steward with your money, yes, money is a great blessing. It's a tool that can make life for your family better. It's a tool that can be used to extend God's kingdom and God's purposes in the world. We Christians don't hate money. But, and you knew a but was coming, apart from faith, apart from thanksgiving, Money becomes an idol, a snare, and a trap that actually only increases your misery. Is money a blessing or a curse? Well, in itself, it's a good thing. Received in faith is a good thing, but if you don't receive it in faith, it becomes a curse to you. Consider old age. Is old age a blessing or a curse? Is it a blessing to live a long life? Well, for those who are faithful, old age is a great blessing. For those who are faithful, living to old age means you accumulate wisdom. There is nothing better than a silver-headed or shiny-headed old saint who's got years of accumulated experience and wisdom from obeying God through the various hardships that have come his way over the years. That kind of old age, that kind of faithfulness in old age is a great blessing. But was Eli's old age a blessing to him? No, his old age became a curse to him. Why? He lacked wisdom. He lacked faithfulness. The longer he lived, the worse things got until, we'll see, he finally comes to a very disgraceful end and a very miserable end in the next chapter. So the aging process, is it blessing or curse? Well, it's a blessing if you grow old gracefully in faithfulness and in wisdom. If you receive the aging process in faith, it's a glorious thing. It's a great gift to you. But if you don't, then all your extra years on this earth mean is that you are storing up more and more wrath for yourself. Are you storing up wisdom or storing up wrath? Those are really the only two alternatives as you grow older. Which will it be? Will you receive the aging process in faithfulness or not? What about children? We emphasize a lot how children are a blessing, and indeed they are, but they're really only a blessing if received by faith and raised faithfully, which Eli failed to do. Would Eli have been more blessed if he had eight apostate sons stealing offerings and fornicating as opposed to only having two apostate sons? Would he have really been better off if he had eight apostate sons instead of just two? No, of course not. Eli's children became a curse to him and indeed all of Israel because he failed to raise them faithfully. He failed to shape them with instruction and discipline. He did not form them with faithful liturgy and psalms and with the rod. And so his children became a curse to him. What about positions of rule like church office or civil office? When those who are in positions of power are faithful in those positions, Those positions are a blessing to them, certainly those who are in those offices of power, but also they they become a blessing to the, the people as a whole. And so those positions of power, when lived out in faithfulness, they become a a gift, they become a blessing. It's, it's It's a wonderful thing. But when positions of power are abused, when those who have authority abuse that authority, what happens? They are cursed and they become a curse. Uh, Those positions become a curse until God finally takes them away from the unfaithful in judgment. What about hearing the word preached? Obviously, it's a great blessing 
if we get to hear the word of God faithfully preached, if we hear the word and receive the word in faith, it is a wonderful gift to us. But if you hear the word and you reject it, if you hear the word and you refuse to believe it and to do it, you refuse to believe it and put it into practice, then what happens? The word you hear, the word of the Lord you hear just intensifies your judgment. Hearing the word is a grace, but it's also a responsibility. Those who don't hear and heed the word will eventually have that word taken from them in judgment. You know, we're all responsible for every sermon we hear, every word the Lord has spoken to us. We're responsible for possessing God's word. We've got it. We should believe it. We should practice it. We should obey it. If we don't, having the word of God will just intensify the judgment we receive. All this to say, God's blessings are conditional. He gives them to us as gifts, but they only remain gifts and blessings when we receive them and continue to possess them by faith. Faith is always the condition of blessing. Anything, Even a trial is a blessing to you if you go through that trial in faith. But if you don't have faith, that trial is just one hardship preparing you for hell. For the ultimate suffering. So that's one lesson here. God's blessings are conditional. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they took God's blessings for granted. They did not receive the blessings given to them in faith. And so they were judged. But there's another big lesson here. And this is one that I think is especially relevant for our situation, when and where we live. What do we see here? We see that God works in dark times. God works in times of crisis. And how does God work in times of crisis? He works through his word. In America today, it seems like the lamp of God is going out. The word of God is is preached faithfully in many places, but there are also many churches and many preachers who, again, are just as compromised as Hophni and Phinehas were. When unbelievers do bad things, that's just the world being the world. We expect that. We know that's going to happen. But when the church does bad things, especially when it's the priests and the elders and the pastors who do bad things, that is a terrible judgment. That creates a terrible crisis. That is the light leaving the land. In the book of Hosea, when the people lack knowledge, the Lord actually says there, my people perish for lack of knowledge. When the people lack knowledge of God's word, God blames the priests. He blames the pastors who should be teaching the people but are failing to do so. So you, you, you might put it this way. As the priests go, so the church goes. As the pastors go, so the church goes. And as the church goes, so the culture goes. Everybody's trying to figure out what's wrong with America and, and, and how far upstream do we have to go to figure out what's what, what, what wrong and, and, and where this water got polluted. Well, I can tell you, it goes all the way back to the sanctuaries and pulpits in our land. It goes back to how we worship and how the word of God is proclaimed or not. That's really the root, that's the source of everything that's wrong in our land. Because the church has failed, because the pastors have failed, that's why our land is falling apart. If the land is rotten, it's because the salt has lost its saltiness. If darkness covers the land, it's because the church has put her light under a bushel. In America today, it does seem that the faithful are being whittled down to a remnant. What are we seeing in our day? A once great Christian nation is being repaganized. Why is that happening? It is because the church has not been faithful. The salt has lost its saltiness. 
See, all that we're seeing around us is a consequence of the church not being the church, of the church refusing to be faithful. But there is hope. Because the priests, the pastors in the land were not faithful in Eli's day, in Samuel's day. But the ministry of Samuel here is a reminder that after darkness, light. The motto of the city of Geneva during the Reformation is still true. After darkness, light. And when God shines the light of his word in a place, that light is ultimately unstoppable. This story shows us that as dark as things may seem in our culture, God has not totally let the light of his word go out, and God will rekindle the flame of his word to shine into the darkness. There are a lot of Hophnies and Phineases in the church today, and the Hophnies and Phineases of the church today will be removed. Churches that are compromised, churches that are corrupt, liturgically and sexually, will die out. And the righteous will remain to inherit the land. Samuel was the bearer of God's word in his day in Israel. Who bears the word of God in America today? It's got to be the people of God. All of us in one way or another bear the word today. All of us can be teachers of God's word. All of us bear the word. I do so behind the pulpit. But you can do so in different ways in your life. You can share God's word in your family and with your friends and with your neighbors and with unbelievers you know. You can take the light of God's word and shine it into the darkness of the world around us. You can radiate with the truth and wisdom of God's word. You can be salt that flavors everything around you. But know this, when you speak the word of God in this way, it makes the ears of people tingle. It makes the ears of people buzz and ring. It almost always results in upheaval and it brings opposition. Let me close with these words from Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor in London, great preacher in London in the 19th century. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, we admire a man who was firm in the faith, say 400 years ago, but such a man today is a nuisance and must be put down. You know, people like to say, oh, we love Luther and Calvin, but the modern day Luthers and Calvins, they don't want anything to do with. They see them as a nuisance. They call him a narrow-minded bigot or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Yet imagine that in those ages past, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and the other reformers, imagine if they had said, the world is out of order, but if we try to set it right, we shall only make a great row, a great upheaval, and get ourselves into disgrace. So just let us go to our chambers, put on our nightcaps, and sleep through the bad times. Perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Kind of like Eli, okay? Uh, kind of like Eli in passivity. Such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Error would have continued to be passed down from one generation to the next. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps and the pestiferous gobs of error would have swallowed all. These men loved the faith and the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled upon. It is today, as it was in the reformers' days, decision is needed. We have come to a turning point in the road. Here is the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? Samuel was the man for his day. Who will be the man for our day? There is no neutrality. 
You have to pick a side. You have to speak a word. Everyone is involved in the great battle of history. Are you on the side of light or darkness? What you do with the word of God answers that question. Do you love God's word or do you despise it? Do you love his truth or are you indifferent to it? Do you take in God's word so you can live it out and share it with others? Or are you rocky soil that the word never really gets to take root in? This is what we are called to do in our day as the church in God's land. To speak God's word from Dan to Beersheba, or we might say in America today, from sea to shining sea, to speak God's truth anywhere and everywhere we go in every sector of the culture. At the start of chapter 3, the word of the Lord was rare. At the start of chapter 4, Samuel's words, which are the Lord's words, came to all Israel. The word of the Lord is bringing reformation and transformation to the whole land. What did Israel in Eli's day need most in a time of crisis? They needed the word of the Lord. What did Europe need most in a time of crisis in the 16th century? They needed the word of the Lord. What does America need most in a time of crisis in the year 2023? We need the word of the Lord. And when we are faithful to that word, to hear and obey that word, and to proclaim that word, God's light will shine into the darkness and overcome the darkness. Don't be like Eli, a dim and waning light. Don't be like Eli's sons who were pure darkness. Be like Samuel who let his light shine. The light of God's word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.